Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahirrabbilalamin. Wassalatu wassalamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Sayyid al-awwalin wal-akhirin wa imam al-salihin. Salawatullahi wa salamuhu alayhi wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum everybody. How is everybody doing? Let's just do a quick check-in. You know, as we collide towards midterms, <laughs> alhamdulillah, and uh, head on into the Old Town Road, mashallah, at NYU. But I hope everyone is doing great. Uh, again, it's the better if you, it's better if people turn on their cameras if they can. If they can't, turn on their cameras for whatever reason. I understand it, inshallah. But this is our second gathering um, discussing the book Al-Munqidh Min Al-Dalala which is actually rescue from misguidance, right? Deliverance from error is kind of it's kind of a watered down version of the translation to be honest with you. Um, if we can scroll down just a little bit uh, thank you so much, Saman. So, of course, the Shaykh, he begins, we talked about how, and just a little bit, up, 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 a little bit more, up, 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 right there. Uh, okay. Um, so, we talked about how he began, of course, you know, praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we gave a background um, to this book that some people actually theorize that it's an autobiography. This is written um, five years before his death, Rahimahullahu uh, Taala, and you know it's very important. You know this is going to happen when you're when you're in this phase of life, when you're wanting to study and you're wanting to learn religion. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, the energy and zeal that you have towards studying religion is really unparalleled when compared to like your early twenties, right? Because I can just say in my own life. My early 20s was a time of like extreme religious thirst. And oftentimes in, in that, you know, which is great, mashallah, but you know, sometimes like my daughter, she's two, when she's thirsty, she grabs anything that looks like ab, you know, ab in Persian is water. So like anything that she can find that looks like, you know, maya, it could be something really disgusting, right? It could be really like gross, right? But she is passionate about fulfilling her thirst. And that is often what happens to people in the early stages of budding emergent religiosity. And at times they think that that passion justifies perhaps judging others or, you know, these pers this person's too liberal, this person's not fast enough, and whatnot and whatnot. And, you know, Sayyida Aisha in Sahih al-Bukhari, she said that the Prophet he used to order us to do what we could handle and we actually became angry at him. And they became angry because they wanted to do more than what the Prophet ﷺ had commanded. And he had to discipline them. And he said that, you know, this is what destroyed people before you. So the reason I say that is that religious passion is an amazing thing. It's a beautiful feeling. But if that passion is not given kind of a rudder, 
it can lead to problems. There's a great poem by Al-Mutanabbi, one of the great poets and philosophers of Islam, who says, Ar-ra'yu qabala shaja'a shuja'ani, which means to have a deliberate thought before you act on bravery is two braveries. It's like a really cool poem, right? Ar-ra'yu qabala shaja'a shuja'ani. And if that's one thing I can impart to you in my time with you, as someone who accepted Islam, was in MSA, I was actually an MSA president, I've never told anyone this, I served as the Secretary General of the MSA and then I moved up the upper echelons of the executive and became, mashallah, the MSA president and under my watch we started to do Islamic Awareness Month. So obviously we were a little passionate, you know what I'm saying? A little too passionate out there in Oklahoma. And one thing I can encourage you to think about, and this is going to sound like dad advice, which you probably can put it in dad advice file, is take it slow, man. Religion is a process, it's not an event. And that's my problem with a convention-based community or a conference-based community is that does not allow us to put in the necessary work to scale and scaffold religion, especially Islam, in a way that it deserves in this country. So Imam al-Ghazali, sometimes you're going to come across some of our Salafi-leaning community who are like, Imam al-Ghazali was a deviant, he was a stray, he was a Sufi, he was this, he was this, he was that, he was that. And they actually may bring some statements of, say, even Taymiyyah, or Allah or some other scholars. But what you have to keep in mind is, the only time that we consider someone completely deviant is if all the scholars say that about them. Right? So you may find people say, like, Suhaib Web, there's web pages about me, right, out there. Like, Suhaib Web said this, 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 this. My teacher told me to avoid him, did, but did all the teachers say it. All the ulama, right? Yasir Qadi, Imam Khad Latif, um, what's his name? Uh, Sheikha Aisha, whoever, right? You're always going to find people who don't agree with those people. That's very normal. In fact, I would be worried if everyone agreed with me. Obviously, right? The point is that in the science of criticism of Rijal wa Nisa in Hadith, when we, when, we, when we criticize a narrator in hadith, we have to be very careful that we state, is this person being criticized by like a few people or is like everybody? So when you come across statements of people like Al-Ghazali was a deviant, no, no, he wasn't a deviant according to who you follow, according to who you learn from, which is fine. They consider this individual as being messed up. But the majority of the ummah called him Imam and gave him the title of Imamah. In fact, Imam Ibn Taymiyyah's student, a Dhahabi, in Sierra Alam al Nubala, he mentions, like, and to be honest with you, Amaliki, some of the most harsh criticism of Al Ghazali came from Sufis and Ash'aris in Spain. They burned his books. 
So, so commenting on this, Imam Zahabi writes, after mentioning all of these criticisms and then refuting them, even though he's Athari, he's, he's not from the same theological school as Al-Ghazali, then he says, فَأَيْنَ مِثَارُ أَبِحَمَرْ فِي أَيَامِنَا هَذِهِ He says, where is the likeness of him today at this time? رَحِمُهُ اللَّهُ Islam." The reason I say this is it gets into the passion that we have. As a, as a revert to Islam, I'm always, yo, I'm ready to go. You know what I'm saying? Last night, 10 o'clock at night, Saman reading Surah Hujurat, yo, Surah Mulk, I'm ready to go. Let's do it. Let's get down, right? That's how it is when you've embraced Islam, alhamdulillah. But I also need to realize that sometimes my passion can get me played by agents and enemies of the deen and people that want to use me and take advantage of me and create differences in the ummah. The reason uh, that they burned his books is because Imam Al-Ghazali in Aqidah has his own opinions outside of the Ash'ari school. So they were upset with him because in some issues he has his own ishtihad like Imam Shafi'i, Allah Yarhamu. On some issues he has his own ishtihad that are, are beyond uh, Sunni schools. And that's just a reality. So the point that I want to make to you, for those of you who are religiously inclined, right, is that when you hear people criticizing people or declaring them, very rarely in Islam do we declare someone as immutable. You know what I mean? Like, like someone's out of the pale, right? That's very rare. But be careful and do your research and, 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 and look to the proper sources, you know, because... It's more difficult to declare something weak or wrong than it is authentic. Because to declare something weak or wrong, that means that you have to brought all of the sources together and they show that this thing is wrong or weak. There can be others that are respected and world-renowned who say, no, no, we respect these people. So alhamdulillah, I think it's important that you know that, right? You're going to come across all kinds of things about people. You want to be balanced, you want to think about it from really an academic perspective, you want to bring together all of the sources, and then you want to ask yourself, like, is the person criticizing the individual biased towards their own school, right? Are they biased towards, for example, their own take on things because of their training? That's very real. Nobody should say that I have my biases. No one should say that they're free of biases. But the general consensus of ulama, alhamdulillah, uh, across the board is huwa imam al imam, and that's a very very important word um, that's given to someone historically. So alhamdulillah, we were reading from his book, and we had some assignments that we were supposed to do, mashallah, and one of them was to keep a diary, um, if you can, or just keep thoughts. So what I thought I would do is I'm going to put you into groups, and I want you to talk about. Um, Two things. First is your reflections from what we went over last week and some of the important kind of ideas. And then number two is how, how do you define, actually two questions, how do you define religiosity in this current era as being young people, right? Young adults. How do you define religiosity? And I don't need you to say, well, Allah says and the Prophet says, we know all that. We're not talking to dummies here. I'm asking you, what do you think it means? 
So it's a very personal question. And then number three is, what do you think are the greatest obstacles to acting on that sense of religiosity? So three things I want you to do in your groups. Number one is to discuss kind of the reflections that you had. Uh, we want to keep a diary if we can as we go through this text together. Number two is, what does religiosity within North America for adult Muslims in their early 20s, what does that look like? And then the third question is, what are the obstacles right, to, to those things? And we can even open up for discussion. I don't know if someone is here right now um, to put people into groups. Um, but we can also discuss it like openly as well. So um, I know... No, that's fine. I think we, we don't have enough people really to break into groups. There's only nine people here. Mashallah, which is awesome. Um, but I think also we want to we wanna make sure that we let everyone share, right? So everyone feels that they can get involved. So let's, let's hear some thoughts. Um, people can just jump in. So the first question is like, was anyone able to think about what we covered last week? What we read, or two weeks ago, excuse me, um, from Al-Ghazali's work? Are there any thoughts on like, how did that set with you? as you lived these last two weeks? What impacted you, if at all, uh, from the thoughts that the Imam shared in his introduction? What's your diary, so to speak? Awesome. Then that will take us to the second question, and that is, how do you... Wait, def um, I have something to say. Oh, okay. Sure, go ahead. Um... Yeah, so like you asked us to reflect on like how we made us feel that the Hadith, to find out that the Hadith was weak. Um, I feel like for me, like I've actually experienced that Hadith being used like within my own family. Wow. Um, so just to know that this is something that's not entirely reliable, um, I think that that gives me some sort of relief because it takes away that barrier almost. Um, and then I also feel like there's like a deeper issue at hand when like maybe a weak hadith is used to like disunite, you know, families or, you know, whatever bigger community. I think it's really a way to just justify your own like hatred and your own opinions. And I think that's really not fair. Um, and yeah, like ultimately I think it's just really bad um, in a grander scale because you're just like spreading hate at that point. But yeah. Yeah, kind of amazing. And to be fair, right, the hadith hadith is disputed. Right, so the point, mm -hmm. even on on YouTube, I posted the clip, and there were some people that were like attacking me, but they weren't able to go beyond just calling me names. Um, yeah. When I asked them, okay, can you substantiate why the hadith is sahih? I know that they have no idea about the science yeah. of of narrations and asanid. Um, yeah, but there, awesome. there there are scholars who say it's. Hassan Ligayri, right? It's a Hassan Hadith. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say how, you know how you kind of went over it, how there's like different interpretations of it? Um, and I feel like kind of just taking the first most basic one that there's only one, right, like that's even within Islam and then everything else is wrong. I think that's almost like a cop-out when there are different interpretations for it that like aren't exactly as harsh. So... Even though obviously it's disputed, I feel like there should be more discussion on it instead of just taking one 
Yeah, being being academically responsible and saying, listen, the hadith about 73 sects is disputed. The majority of scholars hold it to be weak. The minority hold it to be sound. None of them, they all agree that it does not reach the, the level of Bukhari and Muslim. They all agree on that. Or even Malik and the Mu'atta. So then why is it being so definitively used? As though, you know, there's some people one time in a masjid, I had a person ask me if this hadith was in the Qur'an. Because the way it's used, right, with such authority, the authority to weaken and, 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 and disunite. At the same time, it doesn't mean that there's no orthodoxy. There's orthodoxy, alhamdulillah. But there's a compassionate orthodoxy. Imam, al Imam Malik said, if I had 99 reasons to believe someone was a disbeliever, and one reason to believe they were believers, I'll go with the one reason. So you, you compare that to now, right? And then... Not every difference is an issue of hell and heaven and, and, and orthodoxy and unorthodoxy. So when we ask these people, can you begin to kind of unpack it? They'll say, well, the person's not on the way of the Salaf. Okay, what do you mean by Salaf? I mean the first 300 generations of Muslims. Well, Imam Abu Hassan Ash'ari is from the first 300 generations of the Muslims. Is he not from the Salaf? No, he's from Ahlul Bidah. Where is this going now? It becomes like a, you know, a game of I'm, I'm going to define it as I want to. Remember back in the days in those malls you could go make your, your bear? How you wanted to make your bear? Now it's like people make their Islam, they want to make their Islam. And the second question is then what if the Salaf differed? Like Aisha and Ibn Abbas differed on Aqidah. What do you do then? So yeah. I think that's a great reflection, Salon. Thank you. Did you share it with any of your family members? No. I don't want to go down that road yet. <laughs> I know, I know how that is. I've been there. I've been there. Anyone else want to jump in? Yes, alhamdulillah. I don't have a Muslim family. Inshallah. Me too, bro. Same problem. I just think uh, it's one sentence that um, beware of those who make uh, claims. Like I heard this from uh, Omar Farouk Abdullah. Uh, you know, like when you hear a claim made by somebody, you should investigate. You should uh, delve into it, like Ibrahim Alisson. Exactly, and and then if I start, so I know in my own conversion process, right? Like what I noted. Uh, number is I would like run into a wall where all I could do is say well this person said and this person said and this person said right and I was like man I want to get beyond that like I want to know where to go and read and where to find and where to grow and that's what pushed me to start learning um, but I think if I am just quoting people which is great we do it all the time but let me acknowledge that right like I don't really know. I could just tell you what I heard from other people. Like, that's fine. Like, that's okay. But I shouldn't be like, and what they said is like, Al-Haq from the heavens. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. You don't know the other side of the situation. Right. So, I think that's a very important point to make. That there is orthodoxy, alhamdulillah, in Islam. We'll talk about this. It's going to come later on. There are non-negotiables that we have. But what we see, Muslims tend to divide and fight over and what Imam 
uh, Abu Hamid is talking about here. And it's ironic, he probably never knew that he would be such a controversial figure. Like when he's writing this, you know, he probably would have never imagined like people would be fighting, you know, in different ways. Some people who are irresponsibly following him too, right? Like the, the guy can do no wrong. Of course he can do wrong. He's a person. But it's interesting that he's talking about the sphere of allowable differences. Yeah, and that people have turned this into like a militarized sense of power. And, and Saman, you said something that's true. It's like, it's just like, it's not, it's not good. It's like, we can't scale as a community. We can't scaffold. And, and we see the lack of resources and, and services in the community is largely due to this disunity that's there. Awesome. Anyone else want to wanna jump in um, and share yeah, some so, thoughts? Um, so, like, I was in another class, like, a couple years ago, and the sheikh that was leading the class, he actually mentioned this hadith. I don't really remember uh, what context he was using it in. Um, I don't think it was in the context, like, to, to say, like, oh, like, we're the only correct sect or something. I'm not... I don't really remember why he used it, but is there like another purpose to the hadith? Like what other interpretations would there be? Yeah, so we went through one of the interpretations is that Ummah means Jews and Christians, right? They are part of the Ummah of the Prophet. So like Jews and Christians in my time are even going to metacize in their divisions. But I, I wouldn't be able to tell you what context that Sheikh was speaking and I wasn't present there uh, to speak on his behalf. But but even scholars, when we read hadith, like this book is, this hadith is in the Tirmidhi, it's in it's Ahmed, it's also in the Sunan of Yama Abu Dawood. Like when we read this hadith to teachers, they warn us about how we use it. Like you have to make sure that this, is like, this hadith is like a sword, man. You know, and if you just let someone hold a sword, they may cut somebody. So if it's, if it's taught the wrong way, um, it can create serious challenges, subhanAllah. Excellent. Thanks, man. Thank you. Let's move on to the second question. Then, and that is like for, for, because this is something that we're going to find Imam Ghazali talks about the intersectionality of sociology and religion. Um, how would you define like religiosity in, in, in the terms of not, not the Sunday school definition, right? I want that real Bobby Shmurda straight definition i don't want no i heard this from somebody and no no because this is religion should be very important to us how do you define religion religiosity within say your age demographic what would the defin what would a working definition of religiosity be for muslims in their early 20s men and women this is very important for me to hear by the way Right? This is not only, I'm not just asking this question just to ask the question. I'm trying to also think about how I teach. So, who's going to jump in on that one? Religiosity. I think, like, for people like in our age group, like, especially nowadays, there's so many, like, resources, so many scholars. So, it's like, you, you can, like, there's different ways of expressing and practicing religion. Right? And there's no like one correct or defined way. I think it's just more so like being mindful in that sense in our just like daily actions 
like having that I guess awareness of Allah and and also that responsibility of like being a Muslim in the Western world that's like not shying away from that just like having that I guess um, I don't know if it's courage or having that um, faith that if anyone asks you or like for example for me my last name is like Islam so I always get like questions and I'm like oh why is your last name Islam that's like a religion mm. but not shying away from that just being able to kind of like embrace it I think I mean yeah how do you get around it you know what I'm saying it's like your last name is Islam oh, for me your name's yeah, Islam. I that, uh, well, I had no say in it. That's my first answer. <laughs> and my, my second answer would be, um, yeah, I'm Muslim. Uh, born Muslim, clearly. <laughs> if you have any questions, come here. Nice, nice, nice. Who else wants to jump in? Like, how do you define religiosity? That was wonderful, Tamim. Thank you for that reflection. How do you define religiosity for 20-something Muslims? you know, within the context of where you are today. Um, I thought it was interesting that the first thing you brought up is scholars. I, I believe that we have an over-reliance on scholars in areas that we don't need them, but in areas that we do need them, especially in North America, we don't know how to use them. So hence the imam is busy doing everything. I, I met a number of people who said they quit being imams so they could be imams. <laughs> like the irony, right? Like I, quit, I quit being an imam so I could be an imam. Um, but this is something I think that's very personal, right? And I, I love how, to me, you, you begin to like shift away from that to like, it's just me and God, dude. Right? How do you define that relationship between you and Allah? What are words that can be used to encapsulate that within the context of where we are today? Uh, I think... Uh... Perhaps the word, as I understand it, would be ikhlas. And that comes from, like, one of the symptoms of lack of ikhlas is what you have said, that like, the age of exhibition, of self-reflection, examining one's own self, realizing the arsh of self, realizing the ni'mah, uh, is very needed. Yeah, so sincerity, right? Trying to, I like to tell people sincerity is the constant effort to close the gap between the contradictions of our heart, our deeds, and our words. That's just like this constant battle, right? Excellent, excellent, thank you. Who else wants to, to jump in? Um, 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 I think religiosity is maybe like how often you remember like your faith in your like daily actions and like you incorporate them into your life mm. so what does that mean what does that mean muhammad like you you th you remember it that's 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 very powerful like if do you want me to give you an example sure i mean whatever you want to do just like um like reflecting on looking at your own behavior and then reflecting and seeing if it's like uh if like you know allah would be pleased with it etc I guess. Right, so religion as a raw material for critical reflection and then evaluation, right? Like, where am I now compared to where I should be or have, how have I acted, you know, in light of, say, certain values that I hold as sacred? I think it's really good. I think it's a great answer. And, and what I love about Muhammad's response is that takes religion outside of the masjid. 
right? It becomes, the world becomes a canvas now for kind of that, that reflection, uh, which is great. Who else, anyone else want to jump in, sort of think about defining religiosity within the 20th century, 21st century, subhanAllah, for mm -hmm. folks in their 20s? Yes. I don't know if this is really a definition, um, but kind of going off of Muhammad said, I feel like it's almost like a lens through which we see like everything else, like you said, like, um, because it's like, even, you know, your worship, obviously, that's very like direct in terms of how it's connected. But then once you begin to recognize that everything else is also connected, even though it might not be as explicit, I think that's where you kind of find that connection and that relationship with God. Once you like, because, you know, obviously we're not, well, maybe some of us, we're not in worship all day, you know, we have to do our day-to-day -day tasks. Um, so even finding that relationship within those, I think that's like the key. Mm, mm, mm. I, I like kind of the, the analogy of a lens, right? I think that that lens needs to be cleaned, right? That, that lens has to be taken care of, it doesn't get scratched, you know, and, and that lens allows us to see, like we see in Surah Abasa, a blind man who can't see with his, the lens of his eyes, but he can see with the lens of his heart. People, the aristocracy of Mecca, can see with the lenses, their physical lenses, but they can't see spiritually. That's the irony of that chapter, by the way. That's why the chapter says, insan." Let people look. Here, nadar doesn't necessarily mean you're looking with your eyes. It means like that blind man, you're looking with your soul. That lens. What I can right? The Quran says that eyes don't get blind, it's the hearts that get blind. So I think that's a, a great, great analogy for where we're headed uh, in these discussions together, inshallah. Anyone else want to reflect on kind of the meaning of religion or religiosity within the current context? For, for me, it's uh, <clears throat> like, it has a lot to do with introspection and like realization that you are doing, like that you might be doing something wrong. Um, and like once you realize that you are doing something wrong, then you can actually take the steps to fix that. Um, and it's about having sincerity in your repentance. And I, I don't think it really depends on where you are in your uh, journey as a Muslim, but I think it depends on like what you see for your future and like where you're going. Um, and if you keep trying to uh, become a better Muslim. That's great, man. Thank you. Yeah, that, that's, that makes sense. Let's, let's quickly close this discussion and, and get to a little bit of the reading tonight. Um, we don't want, I don't want to take too much of people's time. But I like also to engage in discussion as we go through the text. I think it animates the text more. Imam Ghazali wrote this text almost a thousand years ago, man. So our challenge is to contextualize it, right? And to think about it within our context. But then what are some of the, the, the challenges, right? To religiosity within your context. And... You know, think about it at a personal, like what are the personal challenges you may face? Someone mentioned earlier that they have family members who sometimes militarize religious texts against family. 
that can be a challenge, right? You see that all the time. It's like, man, can we just work together? But what are some of the, the challenges that you think um, the obstacles that we're talking about on Tuesdays when reading Minhaj al-Abidin also of Al-Ghazali, he talks about anxiety, talks about existential crisis. What do you think some of those challenges would be um, that you, your generation in particular uh, faces? Um, I think quite a few of us were saying like introspection and how <clears throat> reflection is important to ourselves and I think like the, the distraction and the constant entertainment that we have available um, can get in the way of reflecting because like you wake up and by the time you're in bed you're like always in front of the screen and yeah yeah, how do you how do you take the time out to look through the lens? If I'm busy looking at everything else, right? These distractions. This is certainly an age of distraction, and the age of exhibitionism that we talked about, which kind of creates those distractions. I think that's that's profound. Um, who else wants to, to kind of talk about things that smudge, or? Um, I think like the normalization of things that we would consider haram or like things that would draw us away from uh, introspection and looking at uh, like our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, like they present a huge obstacle because then you can't even realize for yourself if you are doing something wrong. Because hmm. everyone's Here's a great question too, and this comes into play, and that is, you know, we've discussed this a lot already but how do I know who to follow and how do I know what sources to trust I think that's a great question so we talked about this also on Tuesday and I think who to follow is people that have a broader sense of peer approval right so you can always find someone who tells you that Dr. Fauci is an idiot but if you look at like peer-reviewed articles and people that are in involved in pandemics and vaccines overall you find that he's given his bona fides. If you find, for example, an imam or a teacher, like there was a guy last week, he attacked Mufti Mink. Like, who attacks Mufti Mink, man? Like, what does Mufti Mink do, dude? He's like the nicest guy in the world, right? And it's like, you know, well, just because someone attacked Mufti Mink doesn't mean I'm just like throwing in the cards, right? Number two is if we're that stupid, that means that Islamophobes, and other agents can come and just attack anyone in our community, and our community is full of sheeple instead of people, and we'll just follow that. Just imagine how vulnerable that makes us, that we're going to cathartically react to anything that pops up online attacking anybody, without even asking, because we actually have a very beautiful principle in Islam that, in general, when it comes to these kind of critiques, like religious critiques, not, not injustice, but religious critiques, the critic has to be known. So I, I actually discovered years ago that there were people within the Zionist community creating blogs to attack some of our teachers. And Muslims were like eating it up. So we, we should be also like aware of who is saying these things. And then secondly, when it comes to what resources, that's already, that's been identified by majority of 
Muslims involved in pedagogy for over now a thousand years, right? Books that are trustworthy and widely accepted are known. 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawi, for example, is like everybody, no one has a problem with it. Um, certain collections of tafsir, the four madhabs within the Sunni tradition and then the Jafari school within the Shia tradition, uh, all those fall into like what those communities see as being authentic and sound. Um, so I think that that's, that's, that's not that difficult to navigate. It's just when we are, as I said earlier, irresponsibly reacting to criticisms instead of, th like think about if it was you, like if someone came online and like put you on blast. Would you react? Would I react that way? Of course not. I'll be, I know myself, right? I'm gonna be like, no, man, that ain't true, dude. Like, I know, right? I should also like treat other people the same way until it's very clear. Any other thoughts as we get ready to start reading? And uh, Saman, I think you need to scroll down a little bit. You are not where we stop. Yeah, this where it says, "As for myself," that's where we're going to begin. Um, thank you. Any other thoughts on the challenges of religiosity, you know, I've yeah, had... I was going to add something. Please. Um, I would say, like, a lack of compassion, because I feel like, especially for young people, um, I mean, I don't want to generalize too much, but I feel like there's, like, a lack of understanding when it comes to, like, certain struggles that we might face. Um, what, what, are the, what are those struggles? What, what are those struggles? Like, kind of what everyone kind of mentioned... You know, just like um, what Shred said, like normalization of impermissible things. So it's like always in our face, or like other distractions that we might have. So it's like we're expected to act a certain way, but if we fall mm. short, there's a lack of compassion. Right. Um, and then there's always this like, um, like we're supposed to be perfect somehow. And, you know, we don't have, because I feel like we don't have that experience yet of like going through life and, being able to overcome certain mistakes and, you know, like, grow within our, you know, relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But I feel like sometimes the, the expectations are too high without, like, setting the proper foundation for us. And then at the same time, there's a lack of compassion. I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think there's a lack of compassion across the board. Um, you know, when I was young, I was a Salafi in my early convert days because that was all there was in America. Um, I studied with some of the students of Sheikh Ibn Uthaymeen. Um, I was harsh uh, and, and difficult. And recently, you know, someone sent me a message like, you know, you changed. Of course I changed. You know, they were saying it like a pejorative, right? Like it, it, wasn't, it wasn't like a loving advice, right? It was on my, my YouTube page. This guy wrote like an Atlantic Weekly article um, basically saying how I let him down and how like I was like holding it down back in the days and like I changed and and I was like you know I'm sorry that I couldn't be who you want me to be <laughs> like how do you respond to something like that right of course we change Imam Ahmed had 13 opinions on one issue so that means like he went through like multiple iterations of his understanding Imam Shafi'i has two madhabs, Al-Qadim wal Jadid. Right? His the old madhab and the new madhab. Like people change. So I I would argue not only in, in, in especially for you guys, right? Especially young people where you first of all, people need to realize that if anyone should be excused, it should be you. 
you don't have the experience to know sometimes where mistakes lie. Whereas us old folks who continue to make the same mistakes, we're the ones that should be not given the rope to make mistakes because we walk down those paths. So I, I wholeheartedly agree across the board and oftentimes what we see is a community without identity. So it takes on whatever causes are popular within America and tries to outdo those causes. Like Muslims in America didn't care about black people 10 years ago. Let's just be honest, except the black community. But when be Black Lives Matter became acceptable by broader America and became championed by white folks who, for whatever reason, you know, I was offended when I saw that because this is something that, that belongs to black people. Muslims jumped on the bandwagon. Whereas Malcolm is in our community. And you look at this, whatever becomes acceptable within American activism, except for Palestine and Kashmir, basically. Whatever becomes popular, we jump on it and we actually try to outdo others instead of having our own agenda. And one of those is the inability to, because you know, right now there's very little forgiveness in contemporary society. We're a community who believes in redemption and recognizing that people, being human is not that easy, man. And being patient. And, and those, those are things that we're going to unpack, shall as we go through this text. Anyone else want to jump in? Feel free to differ, also, right? But yeah, and and then to be so vehemently concerned about race in America, while ignoring race in our own community, right? The challenges of racism and structural racism within Muslim nonprofits has still not been addressed. If your house is burning down, you can't go across the street and try to help people save their own home. I saw someone about to jump in. Please feel free to jump in. Rahma. Uh, I, just, um, I wanted to add on to what someone was saying. I couldn't hear you for the first like minute, Rahma. What did you say? Sorry, it was breaking up. Okay. Um, I said that what someone said just now really resonated with me. Yeah. Because that lack of compassion when it's not just on a community level when you start to internalize it and you know, you you catch yourself slipping and it's like you you know, technically in Islam we're supposed to be like you know, like about principle supposed to get yourself back up but when you internalize that lack of compassion and it's hard to like that really messed up your relationship with Allah and I think that's a, that's a problem maybe in all ages but especially when you're young 
and you haven't had enough life experiences and it might be like your first major slip up or your first few you know, you start to feel like I over me. And, and, and let's be, yeah. Yeah, you know, also at any age, right? Like it, people are going to slip up at any age. So so imagine this This is very beautiful. And thank you for sharing, Rahmah. Um, missed your Quran last night, mashallah. Your, your, your reading is so good, alhamdulillah. But... At any age, people go through divorce, man. There's, there's no support system for divorcees in the community, man. People have midlife crisis. People in their 30s who, you know, they were the perfect Muslim kid, MSA, parents went to Ikna, Mass, whatever, and they start slipping and they feel like they, they fall into serious depression because they're like, I had a young man call me last week and said, I was always the good boy. But I found out I got evil in me, you know, and I don't know how to address that evil because no one ever taught me how to. So no doubt, especially at your age, like I was telling uh, Asad Manan one night, we were walking from NYU. I said, man, alhamdulillah, I did not convert to Islam in New York, man. Alhamdulillah, I converted to Islam out in Oklahoma, where the only thing you can do is hang out with cows, you know. Because this New York, wow, man, it's wild, right? Where's the compassion? And, and if we're not compassionate to you, how are you going to be compassionate with us? It's very reciprocal. So the idea of ministry, you know, minister to the young people. Don't judge them. Minister to them. I think that's a great, great thought, like very profound, alhamdulillah. Who else wants to jump in? This, these are, I think, our great, great discussions. We're just going to take a paragraph tonight anyway, so we're not in a, in a rush. But I really appreciate um, you sharing, like, in this way. It's, it's very informative for me, too. Mashallah. So let's, let's again, just I want to let everyone know I really value you um, speaking from your soul. And, and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us at least at NYU and, and at Tandon. I used to live down the street from Tandon. Um, create a community of, of love and care, right? We hold each other accountable, but in a way that's that's invigorating and, and, and encouraging so after talking about the request of his student uh, to kind of break it down for him it goes back to the great question um, that you know was asked earlier I think by by Mumin you know it was about how do you know who's right and this is something Imam Ghazali talked about we talked about last week right? I said that's a that's a deep sea it's a deep ocean Right, it's perilous because when you go into it, every group says they're right. It's one of the things I hated about MSA, man. I loved MSA, but when the group started coming to MSA, it's like I'm done, man. I'm out. I thought I'm a convert, dude. It's like, what group do you belong to? I was like, I belong to the C group, convert. They're like, no, no, brother, you're a revert. I was like, oh god, Jesus. Okay, fine. You tell me what I am. 
But Imam al-Ghazali starts to pave away mu'min to addressing that concern and he says to his student, as for myself, since my early youth when I reached puberty and before 20 up to the present time now that I am over 50, I have not ceased to delve into the depths of the deep ocean of the different beliefs of people, to plunge into its depth boldly, not as a cautious coward. So one of the things that's very important is to be brave, man, and not arrogant. You know, I asked my teacher one time, what's the secret to memorizing the Quran? He was like, confidence. I was like, I never, I never would have thought that. He was like, yeah, there's a difference between arrogance and confidence. So not as a cautious coward to bury myself in obscure questions. And maybe obscure is not the best translation, more like the pressing questions. What are the real... Many people are scared to even address the own elephants in their soul, let alone the elephants in other people's room. So one of the things that I appreciate about people, whether it's Malcolm, Layarhamu, or whether it's Imam Ghazali, is that they're not afraid to ask themselves real questions. The real questions. Eagerly seizing upon difficulties and leaping bravely into difficult and obscure issues. And to scrutinize the beliefs of each group. Of course, we don't have time to do that. He's a theologian. It's what he, it's what he wants to do with his life. But at least the pressing questions that are in your heart you should explore. If I was a coward, I would have never become Muslim. I don't know about Nimr, but I know probably a very similar thing. You know, if, if, if I had been a coward intellectually, I would have never been able to face... I remember being scared. I remember thinking like, man, Jesus is going to beat me up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if I get this wrong, man... Jesus is going to get me, right? And examining it from the doctrinal point of view. And you can think about how hard it is to do what Imam al-Ghazali is championing now in an age of memes, 30-second clips, TikToks, Instagrams, Reels, where if you think about it, the shallowness of information, right? Most people are in the kiddie pool, man. It doesn't, give, it doesn't afford people the time needed to really study and engage, right? One of the beautiful things that I, I, I learned in the science of hadith is that the process of finding the answer actually teaches you more than the answer, right? The process of going through different sources and contacting people and discussing issues and coming to certain conclusions on issues, right? is probably more informative with the mistakes and everything than actually ultimately finding the right answer. There is, there is learning in the process. And he says, I, did, I do this in order to distinguish those who promote truth from those who advocate falsehood. Meaning that I press the issue. I make people play offense, man. I'm going to put that 2-3 zone on you. I'm going to put the full, full court press on you. And ask you questions. And if you get offended, that shows me that you're not really committed to this. When you ask religious people questions, like if you ask them, is it true that some scholars consider, the majority of scholars consider, 
the hadith is 73 sex week and people start getting their feelings, you know that's not a person that you want to meet on Rutgers, man. That's not a person that's ready to play ball. That's a person that's about something else. So that's one way, Mu'min. Ask the real questions. And if you feel too scared to ask the real questions, is it because you and your own insecurities? Or because the teacher has set the thermostat at uncomfortability and respect and authority so that you feel you can't ask questions? That is so unhealthy. That's so unhealthy. Whereas any real teacher also understands that they're really students. Great teachers are great students. So the sheikh, he says, I did this. I delve into issues. I ask real questions. So I can distinguish who's really invested in this and who's not. And who really is a faithful follower of the sunnah of the Prophet from the innovator. And then he goes to different sects, and it's not Ba'ini, it's Baltini. So he said, I did not leave the Baltinis. Baltinis were people who believed everything in the Quran should be interpreted, like every verse. In fact, they said, Like who does not find a esoteric meaning to every single word of the Quran is a disbeliever. These people were, were wild, man. They'd have been great like white hippies in the 60s. Like they were just like, yo, nothing is literal. He said, I never met one of them except like I tried to understand their doctrine. The opposite of the Bataniya were the Dahiriya. They both came at the same historical er error because they complement one another. So if the Batani are are invested in the internals, the Dahiriya are invested in the externals. So one says everything's interpreted, the other says there's nothing interpreted. Only Quran and Sunnah. This is the Dahiri school. It starts by Abu Dawood Asbahani from Iran. He said, without engaging in trying to understand the essentials of their belief. I want to know the real thought of the philosopher. Al-Falasifa. Because in this text, he's going to criticize philosophy in the academic world. He's going he's gonna to tear them to pieces, man. And I tried to understand the purpose of the theologians, the mutakallimin. People of theology. Their, their approaches, and here you see these kind of side translations or like discussion and argumentation. No, mutakallimin are theologians. The reason they're called mutakallimin is because Islam believes you should talk about God. So you're mutakallim. Subhanallah. Say that to people who say Islam is anti-intellectual, doesn't encourage questions. Our, our aqidah is called karam. We talk. I wish to penetrate the secrets of the Sufi. I observe the devotee, the worshiper, and what he gains from his severe, sincere devotion, not severe. As well as the nihilist. So Imam Ghazali, in his time, he would have conversations with nihilists. The nihilist. The materialist. In order, in the, the word Zandik, in order to discover the reasons for his bold attitude. So right here, if you and I think about how we've been trained. I got, I've been through 17 years. I did 10 years in Madrasa, 7 years in Azhar, 2 years in Dara Iftah, and then did Qira'at. I'm going to be honest with you. 
I didn't come out of that feeling like I could ask people questions. I came out of that feeling like I not only have to censor what I ask. In the face of the current climate in the West, I got to censor what I say too. So what's that, what does that do to the human soul, man? And many of you, I know, I've talked to you about it. And I remember when I taught at NYU the first, everybody, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I said, why are y'all sorry? I'm sorry I have to ask a question. Why, why are you sorry for asking the question? It's very important that you feel you can ask a question. So one of the lessons that we take now, as we finished, inshallah, tonight's discussion, is a commitment to the truth demands bravery and wisdom. And now you think about the different groups that existed in Al-Ghazali's time, the literalist, right, the internalist, if you will, the Balkanis, the philosophers, the Greek philosophers, the theologians, the Sufis, and the materialists. And the fact that this person had enough guts to go and talk to every one of them. Let's look at us now. And this is your two-week diary reflection. Who are the groups around you that you need to talk to? Who are the philosopher of your age? Who is the mutakellim, the theologian of your age? Who is the nihilist of your age? Right? What are the different groups that exist around you that if you are going to be Ghazali, and now you'll be able to appreciate the bravery of Imam al-Ghazali, whether you agree with him or not. I take my hat off to someone that can do that. I haven't done it. Some of us can't even talk to our own families. Me. I'm one of them. Let alone this. So that's the assignment as we close now because it's, I'm sorry, we went over time today. I'll try to finish in one hour. We're seven minutes over time. And that's my fault. Is who would you talk to? What groups would you speak to today in the Ghazalian spirit? And that's what I want to hear from you next time, inshallah. Any final thoughts, questions, uh, or reflections? I found this, actually this paragraph, I knew it was in front of us. And I was like, man, this, if, you, if you think about what he's saying, man, the guy is brave. Imagine Imam Ghazali going to a, like a complete nihilist, talking to him or her about what they believe, why they believe what they believe, and listening. This is very profound. Any thoughts on this before we let everybody go and I'll see you two weeks, inshallah. To do the bravery and uh, confidence stem from a sense of uh, tawakul or because otherwise it would be kind of... Uh, well, we have to have a good suspicion of anybody, right? Hmm. So why we, we should not have any negative assumptions of people when we're reading about them because that would mean that we're projecting some dark you know, kind of evil in our own subconscious on the writer. Whereas the right of a Muslim, 
is to assume that his boldness is, is righteous. Right? It's a righteous act of, of bravery. And secondly, he says it in the book. He says, I'm interested in this stuff. This is what I like to talk about. So imagine if you and I went to Washington Square Park and said, let's just go talk to people about what they believe. Man, it'd be hard. It'd be hard to do that. Right? Everyone from the chess player to the, to the, to the, to the weed smoker, you know what I mean? To the, the nudists. Right? Astaghfirullah. No, 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 brother. I'm not, I'm not dealing with it. Then you're not ready to be prophetic. Because the prophet went to people. Imam Ghazali is acting in a prophetic way here. He said, I'm ready to go. Well, in, in England, to be fair, Muhammad, they just yell at each other, right? Yeah. Imam Ghazali is saying, I'm about conversation. I'm about engaging and listening and understanding. That's very different. Yeah, I've seen that joint. That someone actually tried to get me to go there and like get up, and I was like, "Nah, man, that's not." I'll talk to people, but I'm not going, you know, get up and start going ham on people. But imagine if we're all in Washington Square Park. Let's just take it there. Let's all imagine Washington Square Park. Each of us needs to come two weeks from me too, with three or four different groups we would need to speak to, right? About their beliefs, and that. That, that's stemming from what he says very, very early on. Like, I always had this, this drive, right? And it's not stemming from doubt either, right? You have to have good assumptions of people. She says, I just want to understand people. So the more I'm informed, the more I can do God's work. Dr. Harvey Cox, one of my good friends at Harvard University, he's probably now 90 years old. He has an incredible book called The Secular City. It's about this big, written in the early 70s. It's a masterpiece. One of the things he says is that religious communities, by surrendering the secular space in the name of avoiding evil, have surrendered the secular space. They have expanded the secular space. So by pulling back, one of my teachers used to say from Jeddah that I read to in his home, used to say to me, an empty chair can't speak for you. So sometimes religious communities want to pull back instead of engaging in the name of preserving piety. But what they do when they pull back is, if you think about it like a battle, right, metaphorically, you're giving up space. And then what happens? Man, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Were you the one who left it? But Allah said the Prophet وَأَنذَرَ Go out and get busy. So it goes back to Rahmah's very profound point. You know why people can't serve young people? Because they're scared to confront evil in their own mind. So the mistakes that young people make, they're scared that they will not be able to adequately provide remedies for that. So instead of dealing with it, what do they do? They ostrich, they stick their head in the Qur'an. They hope that the world will pass by. But that's not how it works. Right? So that's why we don't have, you know, you see it in New York, you see some good things out there, alhamdulillah, but in, in, in general, you don't find like real services in the community. 
I tried to start Alcoholics Anonymous when I was an imam. Man, they almost killed me. In the masjid. I was start Alcoholics Anonymous in the masjid. Because I went to a restaurant on Eid Day and found a young brother that used to pray every salat with a kufi on in the bar getting into a fight. I brought him into the restaurant and he had dinner with me across the street. And he said to me, Brother Imam, nobody knows what alcoholism is like. He said, it's a disease that I inherited from my grandparents genetically. He had the kufi on. And he said, but Brother Imam, I made it every night of Ramadan. I said, good, alhamdulillah, man. That's, that means you can do it. So we started Alcoholics Anonymous in the masjid. What do you think people told me? If you start Alcoholics Anonymous in the masjid, you are going to encourage people to drink. How? How? This is Alcoholics Anonymous, not come get lit. But, it goes back to what Rahma talked about. Sometimes people are just not religiously capable to deal with real issues. So they react, they get cathartic, they abuse, they yell, they scream, they label. And then there's no, there's no strategy. I would argue never actually that convert services now are worse than when I converted. And I converted before the internet was there. Al Gore had just invented it. I converted when it was like, you know, like you hear the noise. But the services in the community were more human and more on the ground. The first week I became Muslim, a brother picked me up from my mother's house, took me to Juma. I didn't even know what Juma was. He's like, this is our church, church service. Okay, cool. Got it, church service. Then he told me, this is called wudu. Show me how to make wudu. He said, look, when you go to the restroom, right? Don't use no toilet paper, man. You use water. I was like, whoa. He's like, no, no, brother, it's more clean. He said, if you had feces and you threw it on the wall, would you use toilet paper or water to clean? I said, oh, that's true. This is the first Friday ever in the masjid. And then during salah, salatul jumar, I said, hey, man, when's it going to be? He said, That's how I learned. Don't talk. Nowadays, you convert to Islam. Ain't nobody going to take you to Juma. But people tell you, oh, there's so many resources online. Nah, man, some of the resources will get you caught up. Right? So, hmm. Any other thoughts before we let everybody go? I mean, I think I, what I was asking is it, it should stem from a sense of talk, right? Yeah, or just the, the the interest that Allah put in his mind. Like he just, you know, this is what he loves, right? And of course, that's coming from Allah. Yeah, online ain't the same. <laughs> he said it. Online ain't the same. Doesn't cut it. Barakallahu fikum. May Allah subhanahu wa taala bless all of you. Always a pleasure. So, what are we going to be thinking about? When we come back next time, inshallah, is what would be the groups that we would need to have conversations with? Right? That's a tough one, man. Someone asked me, why don't you give doubt to white people? I said, man, white people are hard, bro. That's a whole man. <laughs> Ask any white convert, right? You give doubt to your people? Oh, man. Bro. 
tough, man. White folks are tough, man. Right? Well, get to work. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless all of you. Really appreciate. Yeah, I can only imagine, man. And, and if you ask a convert, quite frankly, they'll tell you the most intimidating people that they perhaps have to speak to are their own people, man. That's how the prophets were, right? The prophets were hated by their people. I, I met, actually, I met a white convert a week ago. He's not a convert, a, a, a seeker. And he was like, can you, can you prescribe for me? And for people who need to leave, I don't want to keep you. He's like, can you, can you prescribe for me a way to Islam? I said, yeah. So you want to read these verses of Quran, these chapters of Quran, let them let slow roast. And then, you know, you want to study like a basic book about like what it means to be Muslim. I gave him a few texts. Then he, he actually told me, oh, no, I don't want to do that. Then why did you ask me? Like, why did you ask me? That's, that's dealing with white folks, man. Then he said, what about Islamic history? I was like, bruh, I'm busy, bro. Go talk to Khalil Latif, man. He got you. Imam Khalil, hook you up, man. <laughs> I don't have the patience, man. But that's one of the groups I put on there. Talk to my folks. Lord have mercy. God help me. So everybody's got to put in their own crew they got to speak to and you will be able then to appreciate that Imam Ghazali wasn't just quote unquote a behind the walls academic Imam Ghazali was in the streets right Imam Ghazali was with the people any other questions or thoughts before we go this evening any dua requests hope everybody's doing well Friday night live. Friday night as a young Muslim is so fun, mashallah. Allah has protected you from the bar and brought you to the minbar, took you from the liquor store to the liquor store. You know, alhamdulillah, to be Muslim and young and away from the evil. Alhamdulillah. Allah is Kareem, man. As you get older, you appreciate that stuff, man, because you start seeing people that did haram. They're 30, they look like they're 80, man. All that drank. All that drank tore up their livers. And they'd be like, wow, Namr, you look so young. You have a glow. What kind of serum do you use? You'd be like, ah, dua serum. Mashallah. What kind of foundation do you use, Saman? Like, wow, I can't believe you're 50. Like, Salatu Tahajid foundation. Mashallah. Alhamdulillah. You know, there's benefits to living your youth away from that stuff, man. That you'll see when you run into people your own age 10 years from now who look like they got hit by the trash dump bus and the bus lost. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Zakamallah <laughs> khairan.